The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning, Axis family. I, I am Don, one of the pastors here um, at the Axis, and I know. Yes, we do have an image this morning, uh, but, but his words humble me because he uses words that aren't really fitting for me, but I, I'm going to, through the Holy Spirit, hopefully... Um, say something that you take home with you today. Um, but man, I was, I was just amazed. You know, we sing these songs and sometimes they just wash over us. But Psalm 103 and how it even ties Derek's several weeks ago of talking about the Lord, and you'll hear it today, his faithfulness and his loving kindness. We, we use mercy as one translation a minute ago when we were singing Psalm 103, he's not dealt with us according to our sins. Let that just sink in. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who revere, fear him. Because as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he is removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It is an um, astronomical fact that the galaxy is ever expanding. Did y'all know that? Like we can see the light, the red light, the fringes of where we're expanding. So think about that. As far as east is from the west, there is no end. Your sin is gone. Stand before him in Christ, blameless. And so as we move this morning into Psalms, uh, you're going to hear that, and we're actually going to cover three Psalms very quickly. You're going to hear that in in Psalm 87, this this high mountain, which is why we have this picture, that that, that life is like that, like like you've been set on a mountain, but we live most of our life in the ravines and valleys and crevices and tight places and constrained and pressure and floods. and, And we look past those if we can to the mountain of God, to the place where he will come from over the horizon. We set our gaze there. And I'm not going to minimize the suffering and, and things as we, we come in here today. Some of us, you know, I love singing victory in Jesus because it is a theme song that I have. Because we're going to see in a minute, he, he chose Jerusalem, Zion, as, as his place, his city to set his temple where he would, he would dwell in his glory. But he chose us. Ephesians 1.4, he chose you to be in him before the foundation of the world. You're chosen if you're in him. And that's just incomprehensible sometimes because of the way the earth, our life here in the valleys, makes us feel. And that feeling can be experientially true in reality, like, and we'll see that in Psalm 89, everything, gosh, this is really happening. But I'm here to tell you, it's not true. It's not the end. There is more to come for those who are in him. And so as we go to work this morning, your card only contains 14 verses. 
Uh, but that would be contextually un- injustice if we just stop there. Uh, some le- common lectionary readings, not ours, uh, reads through the Bible in three years, and they don't uh, give you the full psalm. We will give you the full psalm this morning uh, because of the change that occurs there and our need to grapple with it again for the purpose of raising our sight above the reality that we see, touch, and feel toward the reality of God. So let's pray and we'll get to work very quickly with three quick psalms, 87, 88, 89. Father, we thank you for this morning and ask that what we see in your word is the reality of space and time as we know it. Historically accurate, but moving us toward a history that has no end. So Father, in the, in the crux, in the crucible, in the, the moments, in the valleys, let us sing of your loving kindness and faithfulness. And so Father, by your spirit this morning, may we be taught and not by my words. We thank you. In the name of the risen Christ, amen. So 87 uh, opens with this divine choice. It says his foundation is on the, on the mountains. Like, like it, it puts God on the holy mountain, and, and it is his choice. He said, uh, of all the places that he chose for Jacob to settle, I have chosen to dwell there, and I love the gates of Zion. I, I love Jerusalem where he set his presence such that in the Old Testament, if you look at this selection process, you could go to Deuteronomy 7 where he chose the nation of Israel, not based on popularity, their number, their importance, their own might, strength, abilities, simply because he loved them. He pursued them. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming love. So he did for the nation. And then we see in Deuteronomy 12, briefly you'll see it in 2 Chronicles 6.6 6, where it's kind of encapsulated, but the chapter 12 Deuteronomy tells us about the place that out of all the places the Lord will find one where he will manifest himself. And what happens there, if you think, it's an incredible act of grace that God chooses a central location to manifest his glory though it does not at all dampen his omnipresence. In other words, it doesn't change the fact that he is omnipresent in the world and galaxy. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 would tell you that. Even when the temple is dedicated by Solomon in 1 Kings 8, this house can't contain you, but but basically you are going to manifest your glory here. And why is that such an act of grace? Because God chooses location to make his glory seen such that it becomes a centri- central centrality, if you will, of focused sanctification. Like we have one place, we, we know where he is, and, and we go there and we worship, and we see that in a world where they've been brought out of Egypt, a world full of gods, full of idols, moving through the desert after 40 years, going into to the land of Canaan where there were multitudes of God, literally Deuteronomy 12. On every hill, there's, there's a pagan shrine. There's, there's religion everywhere. So this will be one place, one temple where I will manifest myself. Brothers and sisters, the temple of God today is you. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you're the temple of God? You, you have that 
that glory of the Holy Spirit living within you. And this is gracious choice that sometimes is too much for the brain to comprehend often. And we see that then in 87 that we're on the mountaintop when we think about those choices and why God is doing that. And we want to live on that mountaintop. And it's not just that we are exclusive. The psalmist portrays Rahab, which is Egypt and Babylon, Philistines and Tyre and Ethiopia. In other words, nations that seem like most of the time are, are really uh, adversarial toward God, that there will be those chosen from around the world to come to Jerusalem. All nations, in other words, are being seen in 87 as being drawn by God to faith. And certainly this is, this is seen in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 2. It will come about in those days, in those last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountain and all nations will stream to it. Many people will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Gracious choice being seen here because three times we begin to see that, that the Lord says of all these nations, he was born here, she was born here. That one was born here. We see it three times. And it's this beautiful picture of, of the world being, being covered by the graciousness of God, being brought in. Such that by the end of the, of the psalm, we, we, we see they begin to sing. What are they singing of? All my springs of joy are in you, the source of life, of all life. All my joy is in you. And so we see a group of people dynamically brought to the presence of God by choice, by God's movement. And they are therefore given a passport, a new identity, if you will, where, where their, their nationality isn't, isn't based on a, a geographic location, but based on faith. Based on their belief in him, that one is chosen. That one belongs here. That one is one of us. And when we, we see that, it, it may seem to be odd to you that, that your passport isn't, isn't your nationality, but, but it's based on your faith. Ephesians, I mean, Philippians 3, 20, 21. For our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await. We walk the earth with a passport stamped heaven so that we might understand there will be difficulties in the land we walk in. This land is a foreign land. We are sojourners and travelers. We eagerly await a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come and transform the body of our humble, lowly estate into conformity with his body of glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. It's like an incredible thought of, of where your citizenship is and yet should prepare you for trouble here on the earth. And so Psalm 88, the singing ends. Psalm 88, there is no singing. There's a statement of faith, and I believe, therefore, that, that 88, of course, is written by one of those. That one is born here. One of those born here. In other words, a citizen of heaven writes, O Lord, the God of my salvation. And it's not singing. It's crying out. 
I cry out by day and into the night and let my, my, my prayer has come before you in verse two and incline your ear to me. In other words, three times he's, he's saying something about crying out and, and the word crying out there is so intense. It's in, it's in Genesis four when, when Abel dies and, and Abel's blood cries out from the ground to the Lord. It's an intense crying out that, that something here is desperately wrong. In fact, we've moved from singing in 87 to this day into the night. In other words, we've moved from darkness into darkness, from light into darkness. So my soul, verse 3, has had enough troubles and, and is actually drawn near to Sheol. In other words, his soul and life are so fragile that now he, he feels death. And I'm therefore reckoned as those who go down to the pit. Now notice, he has moved from the mountain and how far and quickly we have fallen from the mountaintop of God into the valley with which we live often. And not just that, now he has fallen into a pit from which he will feel he can't get out. And these are the realities of our life that I could go around this morning and each of you could share with me. I've become like a man without strength. Look, look, look at the fall from this mountain to now one who has no strength. In verse five, he's forsaken. He feels slain. He feels forgotten. You don't remember me anymore. He feels cut off and out of reach. You've cut me off from your hand and you've put me in the lowest of pits, in a dark place, into the depths. And I can guarantee you, like I say, you have been there or are there because this is life on this planet. We recognize we are in a broken world. And God is sovereign, and, and this is bothering me in verse 7, because then your wrath has rested on me. And wave after a wave afflict me. In other words, as soon as I'm through with one problem, another problem seems to come. You have removed, in fact, now I feel alone. My acquaintances are, are far from me. You've made me an object of loathing. In other words, they shun me. And, and, I, and I step back and begin to wonder, who is speaking in this psalm that things like this are beyond maybe even now what I have experienced? I feel shunned and again alienated. I'm shut up and can't go anywhere. And the long-term effect of this type of, of buffeting of this type of affliction in verse 9 comes because my eye wastes away. He is drained, emotionally drained, physically drained. Because of affliction, he is emotionally exhausted. So, so I call to you every day, O oh Lord. I, I spread out my hands to you. In other words, I'm, I'm open. I'm, I'm here. I'm crying out. There's no answer. And the question is then, what do we do with that when there's no answer? The psalmist is then terrified that, that death might have the final word in the next few verses. Will you perform wonders? And that, that, that word is used in, in Exodus 15 for God's great act of redemption, a wonder from Egypt. So, so will you redeem people from the dead? Will, will, will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in a place of abandonment? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land that is forgotten? This guy is saying, I've been put on this earth, I think, to, to bring you glory and praise. But look, will I 
in this condition that seems like I've got one foot in the grave and I've slipped into this pit from which I can't, will that bring you praise? 13, I've cried out to you for help and in the morning my prayer comes with you. There's no answer. Oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? He begins to search for a reason like we do. Why? Why is this happening? I, I, I have no answer. Why is this? I was afflicted even from my youth. This has lasted so long. And terrors overcome me and your burning anger passes over me in verse 16. You, you have, they've surrounded me almost like he's flooded now with trouble. They've, they've encompassed me all around me. In fact, in verse 18, you've removed both lover and friend from me. I am utterly alone. My acquaintances are even in darkness. And as I, I picture that, that, that scene of, of being utterly alone in the dark, I, I write in my Bible every, every four years or so, I, I get a new Bible, and I always write two things next to that text because it ends without an answer. I write Psalm 139, 11, 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. Surely the pit's got the best of me. Surely the valley has consumed me. Surely I'm lost from your presence. In fact, that Psalm 139 answers, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I hide? Where could I be removed from it? Surely the dar- if the darkness seems to overwhelm me and the light around me actually becomes night and darkness, even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day. In other words, brothers and sisters, in the darkness, he is there. He has been there. He does not leave you because of you, your circumstances. Though in reality we might feel it and be able to see it, again, it's not objectively true because God is with you. He has been there through this abandonment, feeling though life is gone and fragile and forsaken and slain and cut off and out of reach, that God has put his wrath on him. He has felt it in Jesus Christ. And when you feel, oh, death is going to have the last word, we read it a second ago, death, where is your sting? It's just not objectively true. We've got to look beyond our reality into his reality. And I will confess that ordained once in a denominational church, so they put me through this, this process of going before many, many elders and, 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 and interviews. And, and as I was answering questions, and they were asking, well, your grandfather died here in this year. So how did that go? I said, well, it was awful. I cried. And, but man... He was such a great guy, and he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and so I kept giving these answers that would take the pain and push it back onto the horizon where, from where Christ will come someday. And they wrote on my script, which I laughed at, but then I said, maybe the greatest compliment I've ever had. This man has a skewed sense of reality. And I said, it isn't because of me. It's because... Death is dead to me because Jesus Christ has beaten it. I'm in a pit, yes. I lost my grandfather. He loved me dearly, but he's in heaven. And unless, like Dave says, he comes back first, I will go to the ground and see him. 
the objective reality is, yes, this earth is a valley full of pits. But the true reality that lies beyond that is he is coming back. And he will never leave or forsake you. So I look for singing, and there is none. And this, this psalm gripped me on March 27th of this year when someone broke into a school in Nashville named Covenant and killed six people. There was no singing that day. They were Christians. So God, how does this... I need something beyond the senses. And Psalm 89 begins to sing again. It sings because of God's kessed, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. It, it burst out in song because, because of God's faithfulness to the covenant, faithfulness to you and me, faithfulness to his spoken word. That he doesn't change, though every situation in, in, in 87 and 88 that are bad make it look like he does. So it opens. I will sing of the Lord's loving kindness forever. To all generations, then I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. Will be built up. Benai in the, in the, in the Hebrew, is, it means it will be built and constructed and, and in some senses made perpetual by lineage. Amazing word that, that, that has that kind of that, that length to it. In other words, he sees something. It's not going to end. His loving kindness. And in the heavens you will establish. That word kun is, is, is it's fixed. It's secure. What is? Your faithfulness. Though everything around me indicates otherwise, that is true. That is what sometimes is beyond the horizon, which we need to look for. And it's so sure that it's established in verse 2, in the heavens, a place that doesn't change, unlike the earth. It's established in the heavens because you're going to see now that, that God takes that which is in heaven and moves it to earth in verses 3 and 4. Established and built in heaven, fixed and secure in heaven, loving kindness and faithfulness. And now he is moving this in some form and fashion of our reality to us. And how does he do it? In his choice of the Davidic line, in choosing David. And he says that there in 3 and 4. That I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish his seed forever, his lineage. And I will build up his throne to all generations. Same two verbs there in four that you see in heaven in verse two. Built up and established. Linking heaven and earth. Amazing scene. And then it burst into, we're gonna prove this. So five through eight, tell us what it looks like in heaven. That God is worshiped for who he is, sovereign. That he is feared and revered, worshiped in all the beings are around him. And we see then that that sovereignty pours out on the earth again in 9 through 14. Uh, again, that's going to come not just in creation, but in redemption. Because you, in verse 9, you're the one who rules the swelling oceans. 
When waves rise, you can steal them. You do steal them. You yourself crushed Rahab. That, that word was Egypt in 87.4. But here also, it's of the sea monster that at creation, God ruled and reigned over. So we have both creation witness and redemption witness coming out of the Egyptian exodus. Like one who is slain, you mash that. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heaven are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. North, south, you created them. Mountains, which, which bring witness to your marvelous works, Tabor and, and Hermon. They shout for joy at your name. Because you have a strong arm, again, that we should hear the word of redemption when we feel the strong arm of the Lord. Your right hand is mighty. It is exalted. Because in 14, he, he places this from heaven to the earth. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, now imagine what he's saying, that, that there's one who sits on the throne and, and the foundation, in other words, the legs of it. In the ancient Near East, they would carry their kings. So these guys are carrying, and the, and the legs of that throne are righteousness and justice. Righteousness, a, a right way of knowing, of, of, of being in relation with God. Righteousness and justice, not, not the judgment we think of. In the Old Testament, it is, it is that the world would be made right with the marginal, the, the poor, the afflicted, the, the widow, the orphan, that we were to do justice for, for them. This is part of what loving kindness means. It means to be benevolent to one who is beneath you as God is to us. And so we see this king coming in 14 whose throne is set on righteousness and justice. But loving kindness and truth run before him. Kings had runners to announce that they were coming. And this king's runners are his loving kindness and truth, his faithfulness. You don't get far into the New Testament before you see in the book of Romans 3.21 for sure. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testified. Jesus Christ is that righteousness. It is, he is the justice that we see. And when we, we then move and, and say, okay, he's going to bring that, those things, those four things which, which earth can't produce. So it's an act of grace. We produce gold and silver and wood, cedar, whatever that we think is valuable. God provides what we need in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and truth. And 15 through 18 say that, that the people then become blessed because they know him through these things and that they know him through the choosing of a king. A, a, a king, if you will, that, whose favor will be exalted. That, that happens in, as the king goes, so the people go in verse 17 and 24. But then 19 and through 37 begin to expand the view that is so vocal. I mean, he's singing this. And it becomes of his selection. So once I spoke in a vision in 19 to the godly ones, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people, David. You can look at 2 Samuel 7. This psalm begins to actually expand that thought of how he chose David and his lineage. I found David my servant in verse 20, and with my holy oil I anointed him. That occurs in 1 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 7 knows this covenant binding. My arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him. 
nor the son of wickedness afflict him. It looks like we've got heaven on earth. Everything is right again with the world. My faithfulness in verse 24 and my loving kindness will be with him and my name and in my name his horn, his strength will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and on the rivers. I, I will magnify his kingdom. I will enlarge the kingdom of David. He will cry to me, intimate, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn. Wow, the highest of the kings of the earth. That verse appears in the first chapter echoed in Revelation. Because it doesn't happen in the time of David. Nor those kings of Judah who come after him. Till they're swept away in the 500s. So who might he be talking about? There is this hint of earthly discipline that comes. And I, I tie that with Hebrews 12, if you're, if you're going to study this, verses 30 through 32, that if his sons forsake my law and don't walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes, don't keep my commandments, then I will punish them. And he, say, he tells that to David when, when he does anoint him as king. But he doesn't take his presence from him. In other words, discipline does not mean desertion. Again, we are never alone. As Hebrews 12 would say, he disciplines us as a father disciplines his child because he loves us. But we will find soon that, that our, 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 the stroke that was due us doesn't come to us. It, it passes us in some amazing manner. And so this, this moment of discipline is, is wrapped, if you will, by, by, by verse 36, 37 that reflects back on 28, 29 that... that my loving kindness I will give to the line of David forever. But then skipping into 35, 36, 37, his descendants will endure forever and his throne will be like the sun. It'll be established like the moon. Faithful witness in the sky. It'll be there forever. This sounds great. We've sung this. We've been quiet in the valley. We've now sung of this covenant. We've seen a covenant in 87 that looked like the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, all people, all nations. We, we've got this. We can go to the house. Except for verses 38 and 39. Life gets real again on the planet. You have cast us off. You've rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed one, the king. Cast off means to make odious, like, oh, I don't, I don't even want to be around it. The, the, the rejection there is, is with a force of being spurned, being full of wrath that, that, that this, this one who is writing there in, in 38, 39, that, that you've been full of wrath against us and against your king. Yes, he has. He's been full of wrath on a day in 33 AD, called Passover, when he is betrayed, alone, beaten, and crucified. So that discipline might have moved past us. 
You have spurned the covenant, it seems. You have, in other words, made it void. And from our perspective, we see these things. We see them in our own life. That when things don't go the way we think they should, we feel like, what happened? You voided it. You voided everything. And and I will give you just one place to, to just briefly read. 2 Corinthians 4, at least through 5, 1. I can't leave you with that. We have this treasure, light that shines in the darkness. We have that treasure. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Jesus, we have that treasure in this fleshly vessel, earthen treasure, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be from God and not from ourselves. Therefore, we are afflicted in every way, but we are never crushed. We are perplexed, but we are never despairing. We are persecuted, but we are never forsaken. We are struck down, but never destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus Christ might be manifested in our body. That the hard things we're going through sometimes shape and mold us to look exactly like him. And we're never forsaken or alone. We simply need to raise our eyes and see that truth coming at us. His loving kindness and faithfulness never left us. But it feels that way. And we've now quickly bring to a close these things that manifest themselves in our our basically uh, accurate feeling and understanding, but we need to understand where God is in these things. So 40 through through 45, you've broken down all the security around us, all the walls, all the strongholds. Everyone who passes by plunder us. Everyone. We've become a reproach to our neighbors. You've exalted his adversaries. You've made his enemies rejoice. You've turned back his, his sword. In fact, you've made him where he can't even stand up. And I keep wondering in my mind, who is this anointed one? What was the historical circumstance around this contextually? Where, where, where do we see you've made his splendor to cease? You threw his crown to the dirt. Who is this? You've shortened the days of his life. In other words, you've you've taken him away in his prime. You've covered him. You've heaped on him shame in verse 45. Who is this? Historically, context. It could have been when a queen named Athaliah ascends to the throne of Judah, brief, I think, six years, five or six years, kills every male heir of David except one. And that one is hidden in the temple. Could be. You would feel that way. Could be when Ahaz in Isaiah 7 knows that two kings above him in Syria and Israel say, if you don't do what we say, we're coming and we're going we're gonna to do you in. And he feels that threat that he's been forsaken. Could be Hezekiah in Isaiah 39 who is literally surrounded by the greatest global 
army of the day, the Assyrian army. Sennacherib has him. It's over. What happened to God's faithfulness and covenant? Of course, God acts. 180-something thousand perish of the Assyrian army. Sennacherib has to go north and Hezekiah lives. But, but, but I believe it's, it's more truly contextual in how 2 Kings ends or Jeremiah 52 ends. It ends with the last two kings of Judah who have their freedom. It, it ends with this, this guy named Jehoiakim ruling for three months, taken away into Babylon. You've broken down our walls. You've plundered us. He's, he's gone. It's, it's, you've, you've made it to where he can't stand. And then his uncle ascends the throne. His name was Methaniah, which became Zedekiah. And Zedekiah revolts against Babylon, and they come, and sure enough, crush Jerusalem, tear down the walls, tear down the temple. Where's God now? And he leaves with his family, and they catch him in Jericho and kill all his sons and put his eyes out. And he dies, according to the text, in Babylon. Davidic covenant. Where is it? These kind of questions and these moments in, in life lead us to existential thought. Like, why are we here? Like, what's this all about? Like, how can we make it through this desert, this, this valley? So we begin to say things like the psalmist here. Two questions. How long? How long is this, how long is this going to lie? Will you hide yourself forever? You're gone. How long are you going to allow this wrath? How, how long? You remember us, our, our frailty. We're, we're just a moment of time and we're burned up and like grass. We're, we're, how long? Where? And where are you? Where's your loving kindness? 49. Where, where, where's that faithfulness you swore to David? 2 Kings 25 ends this way. Jeremiah ends this way. Both questions are answered. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin who was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Who in the world is Joseph? Remember that king, Jehoiakim? He's released at the end of Jeremiah sits at the king of Babylon's table. We don't know why. I know why. The sovereignty of God to the covenant of David. And his name, Jeconiah, will appear in Matthew 1.12, if you want to find that later. In the lineage, giving Jesus the right and the name, son of David. She is engaged to a man named Joseph who is a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. 
But she was very confused and perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, what kind of greeting was this? And the angel said, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And his reign over the house of Jacob will be forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Historically accurate. And yet we can feel so alone. So the psalm ends with a plea. Remember. Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants. Plural. All those servants of yours that were born there. This one and that one, born there. Those guys handling the, and ladies with the passport that says heaven. Remember them. And you and I can argue this, of what the text says next. I'm reading the NASB. It says, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. But if you look at the Masoretic text, which is the best text we have of the time, which is found and dated before the days of Christ, it literally means how I bear in my bosom. That that verb is is taken as how I embrace, how I hold them in my heart. The, The words reproach aren't there, just how I hold them. In my heart, all peoples. And so I ask myself, now who's who's talking? It's been the psalmist. He's lamenting. Who's, Who's this? Who bears all peoples to his heart and says, look, even with the reproach that the Messiah has endured in his life with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. It's the king. It's your savior bearing you in his heart and taking the shame for you. The how long and the where have been answered on a cross in Jerusalem. And now the only how long is when you coming back because he is raised, risen, and seated on the throne adjacent to his father. We'll come forward in a moment to remember those things, this great action of God in history and for our salvation as we'll take communion together on our right, left, and there's stations in the back. I'm going to pray over it, contemplate this moment as you come forward. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. The details are beyond our comprehension. And Father, you, you, you admit that this world is broken on because the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he spoke to them before this meal and said, in the world you will have tribulation. 
You will walk through the valleys. You will be mashed and crushed. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We praise you for your acts of salvation and the fact that you never leave us alone. Father, bring us forward to remember these great acts that on the night your son was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, gave thanks to you and gave it to his disciples and says, take and eat all of you for this is my body which is given for you. And when the supper was over, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to you and gave it to his disciples and says, take and drink all of you for this is my blood of a new covenant which is poured out for you and for all peoples for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Father, we praise you for Jesus. May he be glorified in his name. Amen. Come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.